Welcome to the 19th episode of the InfoSec Sync Podcast, where we keep you in sync with the ever-changing world of information security. I'm your host, Matt Moore. And I'm your host, Nick Thomas. And give us 60 minutes, and we will keep you on top of the latest security news and help you gain CPEs while tuning in. InfoSec Sync is brought to you by VicTech. At VicTech, they pride themselves on teamwork, customer satisfaction, and providing customers with elite engineering and technology solutions. They aim to become an ever more dominant force in every area, product, or service they represent. Visit them on the web at VicTech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net. InfoSec Sync is also brought to you by AllPoints. AllPoints provides a range of technology and mission-critical services within its core competencies that span systems engineering, information technology, cybersecurity, software development, as well as hardware and software integrated solutions. AllPoints, integrating personnel, technology, and services to exceed customer expectations. Visit them on the web at allpointsllc.com. And now... For the stories of the week, ending April 10th, 2015. What's up, InfoSec Sync fam? 19. We're back for another episode. It's episode number 19. This is a milestone. So, let's get started in the week. A lot of stuff happened in information security. Got a lot of stuff happening, period. InfoSec Sync, we're about to take it to a whole nother level. We're not going to announce anything yet, but it's going to happen. So keep your ears peeled. Your eyes peeled, ears open. Yeah, there you go. Your ears pierced. You keep your ears pierced. All right, y'all. So uh, let's get into the first story of the week. The first story of the week is uh, Chrome extension collects browsing data and uses it for marketing. So researchers have made a discovery that raises a troubling question about the trustworthiness of third-party extensions. Google makes available for its Chrome browser. A plugin with more than 1.2 million downloads that vacuumed up users' browsing habits and used them for marketing purposes. The extension was uh, known as Web Page Screenshot, and until Tuesday it was available on Google's official Chrome store. It uh, boasted more than 1.2 million downloads and garnered an overall rating of 4.5 stars out of a 5. Um, but according to a blog post published Wednesday by researchers at the Danish firm um, H-Security, the Chrome plugin collected users' browsing habits behind the scenes. The sno- snooping was made harder to detect because web, pre- web page screenshots did not start collecting the data until a week after the extension was installed, so almost like a logic bomb. Um, Google's, uh, they kill the 200 ad-injecting Chrome extensions uh, says many are malware. So the crackdown comes as Google discovers use of ad injectors is surprisingly high. In fairness to the company that produced the web page screenshot, the extension's terms of service disclosed that it collected a wealth of potential sensitive users' data, and uh, data w- that was fair game included IPs, operating systems, browser information, URLs visited, date, data from the URLs loaded and page viewed, search queries entered, social connections, profile properties, contact details, usage data, along with other behavioral, software, and hardware information, and unique mobile identifiers. According to Hemadol, 
the information was uploaded to a server located at a 64.IP address. The extension was removed from Google's store on Tuesday. The incident comes one week after Google killed those 200 ad-injecting Chrome extensions and declared many of them being malware. The surfacing of web, web page screenshots suggests that Google has more work ahead to police the extension made available on its servers. It is also suggesting that users should pay closer attention to the terms of service. So, I mean, if you install anything on your browser, you need to make sure that it's secure. I mean, one thing that, you know, the browser does a lot. A lot of people don't realize it, but, you know, that's that application layer. So that's at the top of the OSI, and it can pretty much do anything that it wants to when it's in the application layer like that. And so, know what you're installing, too. Right. So if you're not installing something that's trusted or, you know, hey, it has four and a half out of five stars, but it may steal my data, if you have to ask that question, you probably shouldn't install it. Um, also with web page screenshot, I'm not sure what this application did or this add-in did, but it's like the YouTube downloaders and the SoundCloud downloaders and all those types of things. If it's able to collect the MPEGs or the FLVs or the MP4s that you're viewing, just think of all the other data that it can uh, that it can kind of snatch away from you sitting at that. Or that it is snatching away from you. Or that it is snatching away I mean, if something's you. free, you, you know, you got to think, why is it free? Exactly. So... In this case, this was a this was a good you know uh, this was a, a very good uh, kind of reboot into you know you got to pay attention to what you're installing. So uh, with that said, uh, Nick, do you got another story for us? Yeah, a small town police department just outside of Boston paid a five hundred dollar ransom to regain access to their server that had been locked out after being infected with CryptoLocker. As the name suggests, once the malware infects the computer, it encrypts the drive and can only be unlocked once the private key is entered, for which the criminals demand the ransom payment. And this is the Tewksbury Police Department. Their chief told its local newspaper, the town crier, that those who infected the computers in, I think it was early December 2014, were terrorists. Nobody wants to negotiate with terrorists. Nobody wants to pay terrorists, said Chief Timothy Sheehan. We did everything we possibly could. It was an eye-opening experience, I can tell you right now. It made you feel that you lost control of everything, he added. Paying the Bitcoin ransom was the last resort. There's another um, article as well saying police computers in New Hampshire was crippled also by the crypto-based ransomware. Tewksbury will now be added to the ever-increasing list of local law enforcement agencies that have been hit with malware. A suburban Chicago police department also agreed to pay $500 ransom in February 2015, as did a Tennessee sheriff's office. The city of Detroit, Michigan, and the town of Durham, New Hampshire, have refused. According to the town crier, the infected computer contained a significant amount of police data, including its computer-aided dispatch, its records management, its arrest logs, its calls for service, and motor vehicle matters. Wow. So all of that PII was in the open, or I guess locked up, but they had it. It turned to the FBI, Homeland Security, and the Massachusetts State Police, as well as private firms in an effort to restore their data without paying the ransom. In 2013, Swansea Police Department, which sits outside of Boston, paid a similar $750 ransom just a month after they first reported on the phenomenon. 
that's crazy. I mean, and with certain um, information security management acts, you know, it requires that you have security controls and risk management in place. But it sounds like these people or these entities did not have any risk management in place. Part of risk management is configuration management. But then and again, Matt, they probably don't have the funds, so that's that could fine. be it too. <laughs> that's fine, but how much is it costing them now losing all of this data? Well, they realize it now, don't they? <laughs> right. I mean, so you hire people in the call center. You hire um, police or law enforcement to go out on the front lines, but all of this data that they're collecting and they're storing – that costs a lot of money. There's a lot of budget that goes into that. But now, basically, if you had a central server where all this was stored and the admin can go straight out to the Internet to download updates and things like that, now you've contracted malware on that particular server and infected it. Well, now you've lost all of that information that you've worked so hard for. Exactly. Um, so it's definitely something that needs to be looked at. I think people need to look at the risk management framework and adopt it. Um, and then look at maybe developing some type of security controls uh, to implement in that environment. Yeah, so it's almost as bad as Vic's phone. That thing's always getting hacked. I know, man. Always. Android for life. Oh, he wanted to say something. <laughs> Hasn't been hacked yet. Oh, don't say that. That's like putting a... Oh, he's knocking on Knock bed. on iPhone. Knock on iPhone. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. All right, so let's uh, let's jump into the next one here. So the next story is um, it's covering WordPress. So as many as one million sites uh, have been imperiled by dangerous bug in WordPress plugin. So as many as a million websites could be uh, affected and imperiled by a critical vulnerability recently discovered in the WP Supercache, which is a WordPress plugin that generates static HTML files from dynamic WordPress blogs. So the persistence cross-site scripting bug allows for attackers to insert malicious code into WordPress published pages that use the extension, according to a blog post published by Securi. Anyone who relies on the plugin should immediately upgrade to version 144, which has fixes for that bug and several others. Securi researcher Mark Alexander wrote, Using this vulnerability, an attacker using a carefully crafted query could insert malicious scripts to the plugin's cached file listing page. As this page requires a valid nonce in order to be displayed, a successful exploitation would require the site's administrator to have a look at that particular section manually. When executed, the injected scripts could be used to perform a lot of other things, like adding a new administrator account to the site, injecting backdoors by using WordPress theme addition tools, etc. The bug lies in the way that WP Supercache displays information stored in the cache key file, or the cache file key. In vulnerable versions, user supplied data was appended to the page contents without being scrubbed clean of any potential malicious commands. So this is crazy. I mean, when you're using a CMS, you have to ensure that any of the content you're manipulating, anything that you're looking at, especially when you're at an administrator level, is what you really want to look at. I mean, the administrator account should be the most watered-down account that you have. It should have the highest permissions, but you should be doing the least amount with it. So you should only be doing what you really want to do with the administrator account. You should not be doing general user or editor type of uh, activities with the administrator account. That is just not 
not uh, good security hygiene when using the administrator account. And things like WordPress, I mean, here on the site, you know, on, on InfoSec Sync, we're hosted on WordPress. So that's one of those things where you want to remove as many of those services as possible. You want to make it so that you're running lean and mean. It's not one of those things where you have to have all of those things turned on. And, uh, you know, it's very easy to get caught up with, oh, I need this plugin, oh, I need that plugin. Then that's more you have to keep updated. And then what happens when you have a, a site WordPress update and the plugins are not compatible? Now you have to lose some of the usability of the site. So it's, those are a few things to keep in mind. So what else you got for us, Nick? Firefox disables opportunistic encryption to fix HTTPS crippling bug. Do tell. The bug was introduced in Firefox 37, which was released last week, and introduced a new feature that could encrypt web connections even when servers didn't support HTTPS protocols. While opportunistic encryption lacks some of the crucial protections of the transport layer security protocol, it was still hailed by many as a watershed moment that moved the world closer to an internet where all data receives end-to-end encryption. That, in theory, could make it harder for criminal and state-sponsored adversaries to monitor or manipulate the communications of end-users. Now, Mozilla developers have disabled opportunistic crypto in the just-released Firefox 37.0.1 after they discovered that the implementation released last week introduced a critical bug. The vulnerability, which resides in functionality related to opportunistic crypto, in some cases gave attackers an easy way to present fake TLS certificates that would not be detected by the browser. The flaw in the HTTP alternative services implemented in version 37 could be triggered by a malicious website by embedding an alt-svc header in the responses sent to vulnerable visitors. As a result, warnings of invalid TLS certificates were not displayed, a shortcoming that allowed attackers with the man-in-the-middle position to impersonate HTTPS-protected sites by replacing the original certificate with their forged credential. Quote, there was a Firefox implementation problem with Alt-SVC. Chad Weiner, Mozilla's Director of Product Management, wrote in a statement sent to ARS. Opportunistic encryption is a related but separate feature that depends on Alt-SVC. Opportunistic encryption was disabled because of its use of Alt-SVC. We plan to re-enable this feature once we've had time to fully investigate the issue. Mozilla provided a bare-bones description of, of the vulnerability, and we will provide that on the website in the notes. In a post published Tuesday, the Sophos Naked security blog offered a more thorough description of the bug and the risk it posed. A security researcher worked out a way to bypass HTTPS certificate validation if a web server redirected you via the Alt-SVC header. That's very bad, and here's why. If you had a phishing site that pretended to be yourbank.example and handled HTTP connectors directly, you'd have difficulty presenting a legitimate-looking connection. You'd either have to use HTTP and hope your victims wouldn't notice the lack of a secure connection, or use HTTPS and hope they would not notice the certificate warnings telling them that you probably weren't the lawful owner and operator of your bank.example domain. Some users would probably end up getting tricked anyway, but well-informed users ought to spot the ruse at once and remove themselves from harm's way. 
but this bug can be used by crooks to redirect victims to secure connections without producing a certificate warning to say that the site looked like an imposter. In other words, even a well-informed user might accept the phishing site as the real thing. The good news is that the bug was quickly found and just as quickly fixed with Firefox 37.0.1 coming out over the Easter weekend. Even though HTTP 2 is not yet finalized and very few legitimate servers actually use it in real life, it's already supported by popular web servers such as Apache and NGINX and by Microsoft's IIS and Windows 10 Preview. So crooks who want to use HTTP 2, perhaps in the hope of exploiting bugs in the comparatively new code that supports it in the new major browsers, are free to do so. In short, if you're a Firefox user, make sure you've got 37.0.1. Right, that's something to look at. I mean, even if you can just check automatic updates and uh, automatically update your browser software, that, that would be ideal and optimal. So that's one thing to take a look at. Uh, one thing for for users to uh, to use and you know keep all their stuff up to date. You said that came out Easter weekend. Yeah, I I uh, upgraded mine because it told me actually it did it automatically, so I was good. A little Easter gift. <laughs> A little Easter egg. <laughs> Dropping eggs everywhere. So all right, um, I guess let's cover our next topic here. Um, Dell support software. So diagnostic software pre-installed on many Dell computers is now being flagged as a potentially unwanted program by antivirus uh, Malwarebytes following the discovery of a vulnerability that allows attackers to remotely execute malicious code on older versions. So the application known as Dell System Detect failed to validate code before downloading and running the code according to a report published published last month by researcher Tom Forbes. Because the program starts itself automatically, a malicious hacker could use it to infect vulnerable machines by luring users to a booby-trapped website. According to researchers with AV provider F-Secure, the malicious websites need only have contained the string Dell somewhere in this domain name to exploit the weakness. For example, www.notreallydell.com was one of the example sites that would have worked. Dell released an update in response to the Forbes report, but even then, users remained vulnerable. That is because the updated program still ex accepted downloads from malicious sites that have a subdomain with Dell in it. For instance, a.dell.fakesite.ownedbythebadguys.com would have worked. What this basically means is that anyone with a vulnerable version of the tool, which maintains persistence on the system and therefore is always running, might be directed by an attacker to a specific website designed to exploit the flaw in the program and execute any commands the attacker wishes. Malwarebytes researcher Adam wrote in a blog post published on Friday, this could potentially lead to malware being installed without user awareness, stolen credentials, damage system configuration, and more. Dell has now issued a new update that installs version 6014. By all accounts, that version closes the vulnerability once and for all. The problem is that a few people running the patch version of Dell System Detect. As of Thursday, less than 1% of F-Secure customers had installed it. 
As a result, malware bytes software that detects a vulnerable version of the software would display a warning along with a link. So in response to this, all I have to say is when I get a box, I strip it? Strip it. So that's typically with Windows. Apple, I usually don't have to worry about that. Typically, it's bare bones from Apple as it comes out of the box. If it's a Windows software or if it's a Windows OS and it has vendor software on it, I don't want the vendor software typically, so I'll strip it. Um, typically, what I'll do is I'll throw CentOS on there, um, use either QEMU, uh, the kernel virtualization manager, or I'll install you know, Oracle VirtualBox or something like that and run my other OS within that VM. Um, or I'll just you know, put Windows 7 on there fresh, Windows 8 on there fresh, and roll with it like that. But you lose some of the usability there. And the usability you, you lose is basically if the vendor rolls out an update to the firmware, right? Now you cannot use their software to update the firmware. So the vendor is not going to support it if you don't have their software installed in the operating system. So that means as a user, you have to look for firmware updates, go to the firmware provider like Phoenix or AMD, whoever whoever is the um, custodian of that firmware, the, the company, and run that patch yourself. That is simply, or you could, I don't even know, like I've never seen Secunia PSI um, update my firmware for me, but that would be something to look into. If you have something like Secunia um, PSI, which is the personal software inspector software running that goes through and checks the compliance and you know if your software needs to be updated and updates it for you if that'll go and change the firmware that is really the only downside I see to flushing all of the you know um, vendor software I mean we even saw it with Superfish oh yeah I mean Superfish with Lenovo that was pretty big so that's one of those things when you have something come into your house even if it's shrink wrapped I don't care you need to go ahead and, and when you get it out of the box, you're already going through setting up the system anyways. Just reinstall the OS. It's not a big deal. I know computers nowadays or laptops or tablets, they don't come with um, software out of the box, but you can always get the software via USB. You can always request the software in some way, shape, or form. There's always ISOs out there for you to use. The thing that you're paying for is that registration key that's there. So just you know, be weary and stay informed and update that stuff when you get it. So um, next, I guess, uh, Dire. Yeah, so Dire Wolf. Have you guys heard about Dire Wolf? We've heard about that malware before, right? Yes, I believe we did. So dire, I always get that confused with Direza. <laughs> but yeah, Dire, yep. So Dire Wolf, the malware has steal, stolen more than a $1 million, and it bypasses two-factor protection. Researchers said they've uncovered an active campaign that has already stolen more than $1 million using a combination of malware and social engineering. The Dire Wolf campaign, as it has been dubbed by IBM security researchers, targets businesses that use wire transfers to move large sums of money even when the transactions are protected with two-factor authentication. The heist starts with mass emailings that attempt to trick people into installing Dire. It's a strain of malware that came to light last year. The dire versions observed by IBM researchers remained undetected by the majority of antivirus products. Infected machines then sent out mass emails to other people in the victim's address book. 
Then the malware lies in wait. A blog uh, post published Thursday by IBM Security Intelligence researchers John Kuhn and Lance Mueller explains the rest, and here it is. They say, once the infected victim tries to log into one of the hundreds of bank websites for which Dyer is programmed to monitor, a new screen will appear. Instead of the corporate banking site, the page will explain the site is experiencing issues and that the victim should call the number provided to help uh, get help logging in. One of the many interesting things with this campaign is that the attackers are bold enough to use the same phone number for each website and know when victims will call and which bank to answer has. Hey, they've got it going on. <laughs> this all results in successfully duping their victims into providing their organization's banking credentials. As soon as the victim hangs up the phone, the wire transfer is complete. The money starts its journey and bounces from foreign bank to foreign bank to circumvent detection by the bank and law enforcement. One organization targeted with the campaign also experienced a, denial, a distributed denial of service. IBM assumes this was to distract it from finding the wire transfer until it was too late, which is always great. Have an explosion. They're going to go to that. They won't worry about anything else, you know. The success of the Dire Wolf campaign underscores the need for improved training so employees can better spot malicious emails and suspicious ruses like the one involving the phone call to the target's banks. Pretty clever. Yeah, that is definitely... Um you know, hats off. That's definitely very, very complicated, very intricate to evade detection and kind of, you know, banks use a lot of, um, a lot of anomaly detection through looking at malicious software, not malicious software, but in kind of the same way that you look at malicious software in a box, you can look at how it's reacting, um, what it's doing, what the behavior is, and they kind of do the same thing as a trends, trends analysis, kind of looking at what's a normal trend for an account, what's outside the norm for an account. Let's flag that as being uh, malicious or suspected malicious activity. But with this, it seems like as soon as they're tipped off to, yeah, this is malicious activity, it's already hopped three banks. It's done. It's, it's gone. It's so in it's, their account. So it's already at the destination, and there's nothing they can do because now you have to go through to each of those banks and say we want the money back and they're going to say well we no longer have possession of that it's now with with this other bank so banks only have so much time to uh, spend on those types of cases so that's crazy that's yeah. that's really uh, really very interesting so next uh, let's talk about change.org so online petition service change.org has a website bug that is disclosing email addresses that presumably belong to current or former subscribers. So search result, results suggest that the number could be thousands, but change.org officials says it's about a hundred. So the disclosure bug was active at the time this post was being prepared on Ars Technica and is exploitable using the search box provided on the site or via Google or Bing. The number of results returned ranged from 40,000 to 65,000 although not every result included an email address. Still, a large number of them returned pages like the one above, which Ars Technica has redacted out, um, out of fairness to the affected email user. So the leak appears to be a result of the change.org web links that contain valid GET request tokens used to validate users after they have successfully entered their password. 
A bug appears to be adding the tokens automatically, even when the viewer hasn't been authenticated. The following screenshot, which we'll post a link so you guys can take a look at this on our website, but the, the screenshot shows a portion of the token in the address bar. So the link pages display users' entire email addresses. A separate link shows all the petitions signed by the email users, but uh, trying to click through the profile or settings leads to a login screen to reauthenticate. The leak was the topic of a discussion on Twitter early Friday morning. The topic was started by somebody who stumbled upon the bug when trying to unsubscribe from the change.org email list. Change.org Global Communications Director John Cummentry told ARS the organization has became aware of the bug at 6 p.m. PDT. He said that the website administrators has dis have disabled the search function and have asked users or asked search engines to remove the offending results while engineers investigate and fix the underlying problem. An hour after the post went live, however, the change.org search feature continued to return results showing email addresses. So an update is that change.org officials said the total number of exposed email addresses was 100. They also provided the following statement. Our investigation showed that the users whose email addresses were exposed had pasted emails they had received from change.org into public web pages. Google then indexed the unsubscribe link at the end of those emails. Those links contain the user's email addresses to make it as easy as possible to unsubscribe, and that's how those emails appeared on the site. Previously, they were not preventing search engines from including those pages, but the engineering team is preventing or working on preventing that right now, so like a disallow type of thing. They also are clearing the email addresses that have been indexed already. However, this involves working with other search engines, which can take about 24 hours. So that's crazy. Um, it looks like uh, you know Google is a, is a great machine that can go out there and index things and make it more convenient for us as, as the searchers for this information. But at the same time, in the other hand, you have, or on the other hand, you make it easy if you're indexing the wrong type of data to expose that data in a fashion that anybody can search it. What do you say, Matt? You always say convenience and security? Right. So this this is very convenient that I can go to a you know, search engine and search anything in the world and get it back in a millisecond. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's very bad um, and insecure because if you're indexing the wrong things, now that makes an attacker... Um, have the ability to get things very quickly. So, are we ready to talk about this next topic? Yeah, so I don't know if uh, our listeners heard, but earlier this week there was word that a massive denial of service attack was targeting uh, GitHub and that it was the work of hackers with control over China's internet backbone. But now a security researcher has provided even harder proof that the Chinese government is the source of the assaults. Is that surprising, guys? That is very surprising. Hmm. Very. And just as a as a note, um, anybody listening to the podcast, this is something that we pulled off of Ars Technica. This is not self-generated content. So if anybody is, you know, mad at the fact that you know the Chinese government is conducting these activities, et cetera, et cetera, this is something that we're we're simply reporting the news. So direct your comments and concerns or questions to Ars Technica. We'll post the link up on our show notes. But, again, we like to put that shameless plug in there just in case people are like, 
man, Matt, Nick, and Vic are coming up with this crap. Now we simply report the news and comment on it. So just wanted to throw that out there for our listeners. In Tuesday's story, Arts explained that the computer's pummeling GitHub pages all ran a piece of JavaScript that surreptitiously made them soldiers in a massive DDoS army. The JavaScript was silently injected into the traffic of sites that use an analytic service. The China-based search engine Baidu, that's B-A-I-D-U, makes available so website operators can track visitor statistics. When everyday internet users visited a site using Baidu, Supply Tracker, the injected code caused their browsers to constantly load two GitHub pages. One, a mirror of anti-censorship site greatfire.org. The other, a copy of the China edition of the New York Times. Besides the motive of taking out pages the Chinese government doesn't want its citizens to see, there was a technical evidence supporting the theory the attack had the support of China's leaders. The packets transmitting the malicious JavaScript had vastly different TTL limits from 30 to 229 compared with 42 for legitimate analytics code. This technical detail all but prove the denial of service code was coming from a source inside China other than the visited website. Now, Rob Graham, CEO of Irata Security, has traced the origin of the malicious code to China Unicom, the same telecom that has been caught before aiding the massive censorship apparatus known as the Great Firewall of China. The white hacker the white hat hacker tracked down the source using a modified version of the traceroute network diagnostics tool. The customized traceroute used HTTP packets to trace their path along the internet rather than UDP or ICMP packets used in normal traceroutes. That allowed Graham to figure out the location of the node that was sending the malicious code. In a blog post published Wednesday night, Graham wrote, I found that the device lurks between 11 and 12 hops. The web request packets sent with a time to live of 11 are not seen, while packets with time to live of 12 are generating a response. The black line above shows the packet 1 sent with a TTL of 12. The orange line shows the packets received from the man in the middle device. When he sent packets with a time to live of 11, he never got a response from that evil device. By looking at the IP addresses in the traceroute, uh, he concluded to prove that the man-in-the-middle service device is located on the backbone of China Unicom, a major service pro- provider in China. The next step was to trace route in the other direction from China to a blocked address such as NewYorkTimes.com uh, using the website um, linkwan.net. Using um, the custom HTTP traceroute, he's proven that the man-in-the-middle machine attacking GitHub is located on or near the Great Firewall of China. While many explanations are possible, such as hackers breaking into the machines, the overwhelmingly most likely suspect for the source of the GitHub attacks is the Chinese government. The evidence implicating China's government in the GitHub distributed denial-of-service attacks came the same week that Google and Mozilla said their browsers will no longer trust digital certificates issued by the China Internet Network Information Center, also known as CNNIC. CNNIC is administered by the Chinese government's Ministry of Information Industry. The evidence also comes as President Obama signed an executive order imposing economic sanctions on overseas hackers who perpetrate attacks on critical U.S. infrastructure. 
Readers should once again remember that attributing hack attacks to a particular individual or group is extremely risky. Since threat actors frequently stage their exploits to give the appearance someone else is behind them. Still, the evidence presented so far makes it hard to deny China's government at least tacitly permitted GitHub attacks and possibly carry them out directly. Given GitHub status as the world's biggest host of open source projects, it might not be hard for some people in Washington, D.C. to argue the distributed denial-of-service assaults meet the threshold of an attack that disrupts key American interests. All right, so let's go ahead and talk about uh, TrueCrypt. So TrueCrypt's security and integrity was questioned a while back. And so there was a security audit that went on with TrueCrypt. So the ongoing audit of the TrueCrypt whole disk encryption tool used by millions of privacy and security enthusiasts has reached an important milestone. A detailed review of its cryptographic underpinnings had found no backdoors or fatal flaws. So the 21-page open cryptologic review published Thursday uncovered four vulnerabilities, the most serious of which involved the use of a Windows programming interface to generate random numbers used by cryptographic keys. While that's a flaw that cryptographers say should be fixed, there's no immediate indication that the bug undermines the core security promise of TrueCrypt. To exploit it and the other bugs, the, attack, the attackers would most likely have to compromise the computer running the crypto program. None of the vulnerabilities appear to allow the linking of plain text or secret key material or allow attackers to use malformed inputs to subvert TrueCrypt. The report was produced by researchers from Information Security Consultancy, NCC Group. So the TLDR is that based on the audit. TrueCrypt appears to be a relatively well-designed piece of crypto software. Matt Green, a John Hopkins University professor specializing in cryptography and an audit organizer, wrote in a blog post accompanying Thursday's report, the NCC audit found no evidence of deliberate backdoors or severe design flaws that will make the software insecure in most instances. The good news is that there wasn't any devastating findings, which is great news. Ken White, a North Carolina-based computer scientist and audit organizer, told Ars Technica, the mixed news is what happens next with the project. So the security... Our TrueCrypt security audit presses on despite developers jumping ship. The thorough cryptanalysis will search for backdoors and crippling weaknesses. TrueCrypt has become an indispensable tool that's recommended by Amazon and endorsed by different individuals in the industry. Unlike FileVault for Mac and BitLocker for Windows, TrueCrypt works across multiple platforms, including both OSX and Windows, but also Linux. That gives people a single program that can strongly encrypt data stored on USB drives that are regularly plugged into a variety of computers. The largely anonymous developers of TrueCrypt dropped a bombshell last year when they warned that TrueCrypt should no longer be considered secure. The declaration was made more alarming by the TrueCrypt user license, which largely bars the forking of TrueCrypt. If the current source code cannot be borrowed to create an independent version of the program, developers would have to start from scratch an understanding that that could take years. The TrueCrypt audit was already taken underway, was already underway when the developers issued their warning last May. Still, it brought new urgency to the audit's mission. 
with little more than, than the vague and unsubstantiated advisory, millions of TrueCrypt users had little choice than to hope that it was overstated and that the security and cryptographic fundamentals of the program were nonetheless sound. And so far, that's the picture suggested by the audit findings. So the possible attacks or vulnerabilities for any kind of direct memory access or unique key material on the drive is exactly the same you would have to deal with with uh, file vault or bitlockers you would see in both of those programs. All three can be circumvented if you have physical access or protect your or the protected volume is up and running. The results of the audit may give some people breathing room. Combined with the phase one audit results that found no evidence of backdoors or malicious codes, there are no obvious techniques that would allow adversaries to decrypt TrueCrypt procrypted data, but the prospects for the program remain disquieting. For one thing, neither phase of the audit has or even could categorically determine that TrueCrypt is free of fatal flaws. That's true of audits for other softwares as well. For another, the growing list of bugs that are less severe but still in need of fixing is growing with no clear Legal, legally viable way for anyone to address. The loss of TrueCrypt developers is keenly felt by a number of people who rely on full disk encryption to protect their data, Green wrote. With luck, the code will be carried on by others, but you know they're hopeful that this review will provide some additional confidence in the code they're starting with. So uh, yeah, that's definitely very interesting as far as TrueCrypt is concerned. I think a lot of people reverted back to BitLocker, um, and different, like File Vault, different OS level um, encryption methods. But this is good. I mean, uh, TrueCrypt uh, was definitely a good program, um, especially for removal media and things like that. So it's cool to see that they're doing a security audit and review to ensure that you know it is uh, as secure as it's as it's supposed to be. Yep. So what else you got for us, Nick? So in other news, energy companies around the world were infected by a newly discovered malware. Trojan.Laziok, L-A-Z-I-O-K, as the malware has been dubbed, acts as a reconnaissance tool that scours infected computers for data, including machine name, the installed software on the machine, the size of the RAM, the hard disk size, even the GPU details, of course the CPU details, and installed antivirus software. This was all published Monday by researchers from Symantec. The attackers then used the data to decide how to infect the computer with additional malware, including versions of Backdoor.CyberRat and Trojan.ZBot. They're tailored for a specific compromised computer. The detailed information enables the attacker to make crucial decisions about how to proceed further within the attack or to halt the attack. During the course of the research, they found that the majority of the targets were linked to petroleum, gas, and helium industries suggesting that whoever is behind these attacks may have strategic interest in the affairs of the companies affected. The United Arab Emirates was the country most targeted by the attackers, followed by Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, and Kuwait. Computers are initially infected with Lazioc through spam emails coming from the moneytrans.eu domain. The emails contain a malicious attachment that exploits a Microsoft Windows vulnerability that was patched in 2012. The same vulnerability has been exploited in other attack espionage campaigns, including one that used the Red October malware platform to infect diplomatic, governmental, 
and scientific organizations in at least 39 countries. The LazyOc exploit typically came in the form of an Excel file. So watch out for that, folks, if you're in the petroleum, gas, or helium industry. Definitely something to look out for. I mean, uh, these are platforms and, uh, and implementations, uh, environments of which you probably have insecure systems um, just because of the nature of not being able to update. So that's one of those things where even though you can't update something, it can still be secure. Uh, you can still maintain a security posture. You just have to manage your risk within that environment. So it's something to definitely look out for. Um, for now, I think that's all we have this week, right, Nick? That's about it. Okay. Well, until next week, uh, you know, you guys stay cool out there. Um, definitely stay informed and uh, stay in sync with InfoSec Sync. Talk to you guys next week.